0: How's everybody? Let's uh, stand up, if you would, and join me in prayer. So, Father, thank you for your presence and your grace and your goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for every person that's here. Lord, I just pray today that you will uh, open this up for us in a way that we can understand. So in that, I ask for your aid and your assistance, that you would give me utterance in the Holy Spirit today, that revelation would pour forth in our lives from heaven and that we would come to a deeper understanding of who we are in you. And so I give you thanks for all your people. I pray, Lord, for all that are distressed, that they find peace, for all that are sick today or hurting in their bodies, that they find healing and speedy recoveries. Father, we just ask for um, your impartation to just release us from whatever is binding us, restraining us, And Keeping us down and we give you thanks for that in Jesus name And if you can agree with that just say amen Amen. And take your seat god bless you I'm gonna read two portions of scripture and i'm kind of going back to the well on something that I did a number of years ago Um, but it's fresh and I so I think it deserves a fresh hearing We've been talking about the kind of our theme for the year has been shifting our beliefs and uh, when you shift a belief, you change your experience. And we really do. Someone once said, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. And there is a lot of truth to that because any information you receive has to be processed through your belief system. Right. So that means when you're receiving information, it's being influenced by what you believe. So when you shift a belief, you change your entire experience and things can look differently. How many of you have ever thought something was not true? You didn't, didn't believe in something, didn't embrace something, uh, you fought against something. And then later on down the road, <laughs> as you got more information and your beliefs shifted, you look back at either what you refused to embrace before and you say, how did I not see it? or you look back at what you used to believe and say, how the heck did I fall for that nonsense? <laughs> Anybody know what I'm talking about? So we started out talking about shifting our beliefs about who God is and how he relates to us. Uh, and then we talked a little bit about who humanity is and I want to shift shift. Uh, I, w- I want to take it in a new direction today, looking at who we are, as sons or sons and daughters of God. Um, So in doing that, I want to look at the first son in the Bible, and that's Cain. Now, that may seem like an unusual place to start, but I'm going to start there anyway. Um, In Genesis, Chapter four, verse one, and then we're going to go to John, chapter one and look at that prologue passage again. Um, What can I say? So I'm reading from the new international, the new, new international version. (laughs) Chapter four, verse one, it says, Adam made love to his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, and the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. I want to stop right there because for years, decades, when I read this passage, when I, you know, read it to my Kids heard it in Sunday school when I heard it preached the focus was always on the offering that God rejected Cain's offering and accepted Abel's offering as though that's the only thing that God is looking at. But I want you to see in the text he looks at the person first. So he looks looks at Abel with favor and his offering. He looks at Cain And not with favor and his offering. So he's looking at the sons first. And it's connected. It's not just about the offering, but we miss that, I think, unless it's pointed out. Got it. All right. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, do what is right. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now let's look in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. (laughs) He was with God in the beginning, through him. All things were made and without him nothing was made that is made and in him was life and the life is the light of all mankind and the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all all might believe he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light (laughs) to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Verse 12 is where I want to focus. Yet to all who did receive him, to them who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So I want to talk this morning about what is a son. But before we do that, I think we need to identify what is sin. And believe it or not, this is kind of a complex question. Uh, And what I'm going to present to you today is uh, my intuitive answer. Rather than a scholarly answer, because there have been volumes of books written uh, by scholars about what does this word sin mean? And you might sit there and ask yourself, well, what's the big deal? I mean, we know what sin is, right? <laughs> uh, at least what the word is, what it means. I mean, how can it be that big of a deal? But it's very important that we understand that words do not have a meaning. Listen carefully to this. Words Do not have a meaning that is inherent to the word that somehow belongs to the word. The meaning that a word has belongs to the cultural agreement that we have said together. This is what that word means. Give you a perfect example. If in the 1920s I said the word gay. What did I mean? Happy, Happy, right? Joyful, and it was used commonly as that expression. Here we are a century later, but even before that, right? Heck, by the time I was in school in, uh, well, we won't go there. (laughs) The word gay meant something else. So today when you use the term gay, what does it mean? It's, It's referring to someone's sexual orientation, correct? So here's the deal. If I want to be understood, I have to follow the cultural agreement because it's the cultural agreement that determines the meaning of the word. I cannot expect to use the word gay. If I say I'm gay, I cannot expect you to think that I'm happy. Right. I can. But I can't expect you to think about what the cultural agreement is. Are you tracking with me? Let me give you another example, because these things are all symbols. If I. Uh. Take the number five, get a picture of the number five in your mind. It looks like this, right? It's drawn like this, that that we say that is five. But actually, it's just a squiggly, some squiggly lines that represent five items, right? One, two, three, four, five, right now. I could, if I wanted to, for myself, make that drawing of what we call the number five equal to four. And I could say that to me means four, (laughs) right? But if I'm, you know, like, have you seen the math that kindergartners are doing today? (laughs) It is unbelievable what these kids are doing in kindergarten. Anyway, so if I was in pre preschool and my teacher said two plus two, what is two plus two? and I decide that this symbol means four, I could put that symbol, but am I going to get it correct? No. Why? Because the cultural agreement is that that symbol stands for five numbers, the count of five, not the count of four. Did I lose you in all that? Okay. So this is why interpreting scripture is very complex or why translating scripture is very complex and why you find such a diversity of opinion. Because... Scholars have to go back and recover a dead language. (laughs) That's bad enough. But they have to figure out what did the culture mean when they were using these words. So when I say that to you, how old is the book of Genesis? How many thousands of years? So you can see how our language can change in one generation from happy to sexual orientation. I mean, with seemingly... It's it's an interesting study, and if you're nerdy like me, you, you know how that happened. But it's not my message. But it's interesting to think that a word that meant happy could refer to someone's sexuality. Like, it could just jump. Meanings like that, right? So, my point is, we have a cultural agreement as Christians, as evangelicals, whatever, about what sin is. And because of centuries, because of... Generation after generation after generation of tradition being passed down and handed down we have equated the idea of sin as something that you do for example if we go back um, can I go back to that verse Mike somehow Genesis four, the one you had up not the not not that one the other one didn't you have the other one up or no no. Okay, never mind. I'm I'm wrong. Let's get off that. This is not working for me today for some reason. Sorry. Um, So in the NIV, it says if you do not, if you do right, if you do right, you'll be accepted. So that is, if you don't do right, then sin is lying at your door, right? Oh, but watch. There's a distinction between doing right and sin, or not doing right and sin. It says if you don't do right, sin lies at your door. He didn't say you sinned. But for us, our cultural agreement about the word sin is, it's what you do. So Cain's sin was the offering. Cain's sin was killing Abel. Yes? But what if that's not what the text is intended to show you? (laughs) And what if you stumble over your own preconceived ideas or your own cultural agreements and miss some of the rich things that are really there? So, now we can pull that verse up. I'm going to give you, to give you a Genesis 4-7 in a different translation. This comes from the um, uh, Jerusalem Bible. Maybe. <laughs> the, the, the Genesis 4-7. Yeah, right there. This comes from the Jerusalem Bible. It's an older translation. In my opinion, it's a much, accurate, much more accurate translation. But it says here, Why are you downcast? If you are well disposed, ought you not to lift up your head? But if you are ill disposed, is not sin at the door like a crouching beast hungering for you, which you must master? Now, I want you to notice how many times the word are is in there. Because are refers to a state of being, to the way you are, not to what you do. So remember, God looks at Cain. And talks about his state of being and he says, why are you downcast if you are well-disposed, if you are well-disposed, ought you not to lift up your head. But if you are ill-disposed, has nothing to do with anything that he's doing, if you are ill-disposed, is not sin at the door like a crouching beast hungering for you, which you must master? So here's the other thing sin in its first reference first mention in the Bible has nothing to do with an action It has to do with a state of being a beast. It's a noun. It's a, it's personified It's an entity. It's a being Now here's the other thing we were taught that I mean I, This was drilled into me in the faith movement I don't know how many of you like came through the faith movement, but this was drilled into us that you know when Adam sinned He received a sin nature And then he passed that sin nature on to everybody else, which is the doctrine that we've been looking at, that Augustine came up with, called the doctrine of original sin. But see, here's the issue. If sin was a nature that Adam inherited, surely he passed that nature on to Cain. The first murderer. Right? Right? But he doesn't. He he doesn't say you are sin. He says sin is at the door. So it's something other than him. It's something separate from him, and it's lying in wait for him. So it can't be intrinsic to who he is. Which is, can I do this? Should I do this? I did this first service, and I think I, I ruffled some feathers. I'm gonna me- I'm gonna mess with your Sunday school just a little bit. So so we have tried to make the Genesis texts do things that the writers never <laughs> intended for them to do because Genesis was never written as a scientific textbook. It, please understand science did not develop until much later. And really it was Roger Bacon, like in the middle ages who came up with the scientific method, right? So, you know, last century, in the 20th century, how many of you ever heard of the Scopes trials? So Scopes trials, they put on a fake trial where they put creation on trial with Darwin's theory of evolution. And all the Christians that they got to take the stand were hell-bent on making a scientific interpretation of the first three or four chapters of Genesis. Got it? Stay with me. So here are some of the problems that we created for ourselves. We know scientifically the earth is older than 6,000 years. Now, you can argue that the science is wrong, but you're doing that because you don't know enough facts, because that's being very intellectually dishonest. That's the first thing. Second thing is, you're not going to find a Jewish person. They weren't at the Scopes Trials. Because Jewish people know what their texts are intended to do and nobody even in the first century when Jesus was around was worrying about scientifically even had a frame of reference at all to think about historicity or science in those stories. Yes. The issue was, you've got to understand, in the ancient world, the issue was everybody believed uh, that humanity was was basically waste. Uh, a few weeks ago, I told you about the story of the Greeks. The Greeks believed that Prometheus created humanity and thought he did something good. He went to Zeus and said, look at humanity I created. And Zeus said, ugh. <laughs> and then Zeus said, ah, oh, they won't even last through the winter. It's okay. They're a weak species. They won't even last through the winter. And so what does Prometheus do? Prometheus steals lightning. <laughs> steals fire from Zeus's lightning bolt and gives humanity fire so they can make it through the winter and Zeus gets so mad he punishes Prometheus for, you know, whatever and So there's this idea that humanity was just this Like subset of the gods, like something that the gods tolerated or put up with or played with or whatever. And so the issue for the biblical writers is, no, humanity is not a slave species. Humanity is not uh, on some lower par. Humanity is created in the image and the likeness of God. That's what they're trying to teach. Now we have this problem. People say, well, if the Bible's true, then where did Cain get his wife? Well, if you... (laughs) If you're interpreting it as, a, as the Wall Street Journal, or not that, the New York Times that's telling you the events, you got a real problem. And the best we could come up with was incest. He married his sister. Bear with me. In the text, in Genesis 127, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's unfortunate. That we translated it man because you think a singular man but that's not what it says god said let us make humanity in our image nowhere in genesis 1 did he just create two sheep or two fish or two birds and expect them to reproduce and fill the earth i'm really messing with you but see if you believe that humanity is born sinful because of what adam did it is necessary for you to have Adam be the father of the entire human race, and I'm telling you from the scriptures, if that's true, then Cain would have had a sin nature. So Cain did not marry his sister. it went over about like in the first service. <laughs> Just think, God is telling a story in order to enlighten you, not inform you. Okay, let me say it this way. God is telling a story in order to transform you rather than inform you. So we create all kinds of problems for ourselves trying to evangelize because we don't let the text be what it is. We try to make it something that it's not based on our need for a cultural agreement that we've got the truth. Are you breathing? All right, that that was all for you. I don't know why I got into all that. Thank you. All right, so disposition. You are ill-disposed. Disposition. Disposition means the predominant or prevailing tendency of one's spirit's natural, mental, and emotional outlook or mood characteristic attitude. Cain, if you have a good attitude... Will you not be accepted if you have a bad attitude? Sin is lying at your door. Its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Does that make sense? I don't want that yet. the The Greek word for sin is hamartia. It's also in the Hebrew. I, don't, I didn't put the Hebrew word up there for you, but it's the, it has the same meaning. It's an archer's term for missing a target. Means you didn't get what you were aiming for. Means you fell short of what you were aiming for. Got it? Now, something else that's interesting, stay with me, something else that's interesting about what God tells Cain is he says, uh, w- one scholar said this verse is better translated, Shalt thou not have excellency? So in other words, not accepted. If you are well disposed, Shalt thou not have excellency? The scholar goes on to say, which is the true sense of the words referring, listen to this, referring to the high privileges and authority belonging to the firstborn in patriarchal times. Shall you not have excellency? Shall you not have the high authority and high privileges that belong to the firstborn in the patriarchal times? So it's a play on words. Why are you downcast? If you are well disposed, will you not be lifted up, exalted, put in a high place of authority? Does that make sense? So in other words, because Cain was not seeing himself... As the firstborn and possessing all that went with it because he was not thinking of himself in an elevated, excellent way as having authority and dominion and privileges as the firstborn. He was ill disposed and vulnerable to a beastly entity called sin who was hungering for him and lying in wait for him. So, therefore, the issue of sin, you could say that that because Cain was not carrying himself to the high degree of excellency that he was created to have, that he had fallen short of the mark. And that you seen that. It? So it's more about his state of being. And he's offering fruit that flows out of that ill disposition and that's why God rejected the offering. See it? Yeah. He couldn't see who he was. Couldn't see who he was supposed to be, so therefore he did not act in accordance with it. Make sense? Now watch this. When God created humanity, he says, it says God created humanity in his own image, male and female. He created them not just two. all right get off that male and female he created them right and he blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply have dominion over what the beasts of the field the birds of the air the fish of the sea but what was the first thing and everything that creeps on the ground what's the first thing the beasts of the so walk out of the image of God walk in dominion over the beasts right So what did God refer to sin as? A beast crouching at your door. Something of a lower nature. Right? Now, what did Abel do? What was his job? What did he offer to the Lord? He's a shepherd, right? Now, keep in mind that sheep have been domesticated animals for millennia. So it's... In their DNA to be mild and go along to get along you don't know that they they probably didn't start out that way so you're talking about the first shepherd who domesticates wild beasts so they go out to the field together so look here's what God's doing God's showing Cain, God's looking into Cain, and he's showing him the problem is his disposition. It's his mental and emotional setup. And he's saying, if you don't change that mental and emotional setup, this lower beastly nature is at the door, (laughs) lying in wait for you. It desires you, but you should master it. And who had mastered the beasts? Abel. So he goes out into the field with Abel, so he has an opportunity to be mentored by someone who'd already done it. But instead of being mentored by somebody who had already done it, he kills him. Does that make sense? So metaphorically, then, at a deeper level of interpretation and revelation... The beasts represent things that are natural to us as human beings that are energies. Notice, nowhere in the text does God ever say that sin is bad. He just says sin is hungry and sin will is desire for you. And he says, but you should master it. So here's the thing. We have all kinds of energies inside us. That are meant to serve us and serve the purpose of God and expanding his kingdom and none of them are wrong and none of them are bad and none of them are so totally corrupt you have to get rid of them. It's funny that nothing in nature you can't get rid of anything in nature. Right what's one of the laws of what is that dynamics? is this too intellectual for you guys you know nothing can be created or destroyed in only what changes form right. They say one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? So it's it's God didn't tell him to get rid of sin. God said, master it. As long as we think sin is an action, then we'll think we need to get rid of our actions and change our behaviors. And we never address the real issue. Sin is falling short of who you are as a son and a daughter of God. That's what it is. And then whatever you do from that state is the byproduct. All right, so let's take anger. Anger is a force inside all of us. Right? Some of us have mastered it better than others. But anger in and of itself is a gift. Anger will help you protect... What is valuable and important to you anger can tell you when your boundaries got violated anger can tell you there's a problem in your life that you're refusing to address and all of those things are good things but if you can't tame the beast you become a murderer you become an abuser you become destructive you become selfish you. You don't get rid of the anger, you domesticate it. Where you're able to live with it so that it's serving you, not working against you. Let's do another one. Seems like whenever the church talks about sin, sexuality comes up. God told humanity, He blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. So that process is a blessing. But remember, blessing is what? It's energy. So God put an energy inside of humanity for reproduction. So on the one side, you have, like, did you know they have a, a Sex Addicts Anonymous group? Like, they just like they have uh, Alcoholics Anonymous group. Um, anyway. always oh, kind of cracked me up. You know, you get all the alcoholics together. <laughs> get all the people that are into narcotics together. They can kind of, you know... Tell you where the dealer is. What happens when you get a bunch of sex addicts together? I mean, you know, and how how many guys that are just looking for a good time go to the clap? Anyway. Sorry. Sorry. So uh, my point is, if it's ruling over you, it becomes destructive, Right. So then on the flip side of that, you have some of our brethren in certain denominations who equate getting rid of your sex drive abstinence with holiness. And so they don't let their ministers marry. But let me ask you a question based on what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years. Just because they're practicing abstinence, are they mastering Or is it ruling over them? You understand what I'm saying? Because you can't get rid of it. Just like you can't get rid of anger. These are energies that you are meant to tame and domesticate so that they serve you. But if you don't tame and domesticate them, they will be lying at your door like a ravenous beast. And if you don't master them, they will devour you. And destroy you. Does that make sense? So you're not trying to get rid of something. You're trying to tame it. So when God looks at Abel, Abel presents what he's tamed as an offering that is acceptable to God. Because nothing in this world is inherently evil. Because God looked at all that he had made. And said, Behold, it is very good. Amen. Evil is the projection of a consciousness that has been tainted with false knowledge. With the lies of the serpent. That says, has God, has God indeed said, Now I take what God has called good and call it Evil, because my disposition is ill. Make sense? Contrast that with Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To as many as received him, and watch this, To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, to those who received him, there was freedom of choice now. To those that received him, there was empowerment now in order to become something that you weren't. In order to be transformed. In order to be transformed from an ill disposition. To be transformed so that you walk in the highest state and the excellency and the privileges and the dominion and the authority that belongs to you and me as children of God. As reproductions of God. As reproductions of God. Every seed produces after its own kind. Giraffes give birth to giraffes. Horses give birth to horses. Dogs give birth to dogs. God gives birth to... We say, it gets translated for us, the only begotten Son, but it's a poor translation. It's one word in the Greek. It's the word monogenes. Genes is where we get the word genetic or gene, and mono isn't just a disease you get from a drinking fountain. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, it just, it just pops, out my, pops in my head and out my mouth. <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad you sit in the front. Nice, friendly face. It's a single gene. Watch. Sin is something other than. Mm -hmm. See, I unfolded physically, genetically. I unfolded to the height I was meant to be with the eye color I was meant to be. I still got my hair (laughs) (laughs) to this magnificent specimen standing before you today. I, I can't take credit for it. I'd love to, but I can't. You know, it was, all, it was all genetics. It was my mom and dad. They get the glory for it. You get it? Just, but we're talking about a, a genetic, an internal genetic process that is meant to reproduce in human beings the characteristics and the likeness and the reproduction of God himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A singularity. And all things were made by Him. And without Him, nothing was made that has been made. A singularity. (laughs) And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the single genetic representation of God. And to as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the single genetic representation. Of God see when 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 John says a couple chapters later for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son think about it in genetic terms he's not just talking about the person of Jesus of Nazareth who's going to die on the cross to save you he's talking about a monogenesis. he's talking about a single genetic principle that will reproduce sons and daughters of God that through Christ he has now injected into the consciousness of humanity And as many as received him, to them he gave the power. It means the power to choose and the right to become something that you weren't before. So no matter what your situation is, no matter where you are, you have the power to change. One of the most devilish, demonic, horrific beliefs, seeds of the serpent that you can possibly ever accept is that you cannot change, that you cannot learn, that you cannot grow, that you cannot improve, that you cannot do better. Yet there are so many people because we're stuck. We're a a culture that's addicted to doing. We are a church that's addicted to doing and not doing. Instead of translating it correctly, ill-disposed or well-disposed, we translate it do right or don't do right because that's how deeply it's embedded in our consciousness. And so we preach behavior modification that does nothing to transform the inner man. When all along God has made the church the stewards of the monogenes, the stewards of the Christ consciousness, stewards of something that has the power to break the bondage of every limitation, every demonic structure, every stronghold that's been put upon your life. So you have got to let go of this belief that you cannot change. You You've got to let go of this belief that you're too old to change. You've got to let go of this belief that it's too hard to change. Because you have something from God. That, that I didn't have to try to grow to six foot three. It just happened. Because it was a genetic process. So when I engage Christ. When I engage the Son of God. When I engage the New Testament in the right way. So that it's transforming my inner man, I don't have to try to be like Jesus. See, if you're trying to be like Jesus, that's the first sign that there's something wrong. If you think it takes effort and it's all white knuckle in it and gritting your teeth, you're in the wrong... You're. All that tension, all that effort, all that stress, all that trying is there as a signal to you to stop. Because your inner genetics know it's jacked up. So you're tense and you're stiff and you're upset and whatever because your inner person is telling you, Get out. Stop it. Quit it. (laughs) Something is wrong. But we keep reinforcing this group consciousness of what sin is and what Christ-likeness is. Because we've come up with our own concepts and our own models of what's right and what's wrong. And it's eating at that tree that's producing death. But Christ is the tree of life. Mess up one more of your little things. What, what did he call sin to Cain? So it's like a like a beast, right? Everybody say beast. What did Cain receive after he killed Abel? A mark, right? A mark, right? Okay, carry it through. Understand that everything that begins as a seed concept in Genesis finds its full culmination in the book of Revelation. So when you have the beast of Revelation, it's coming from the dust of the earth because Cain was a tiller of the. And it's a beast, not a person. It's a nature. So people who take the mark of the beast, where do they take it? What's behind your forehead? Anybody know? It's the most advanced, most developed part of your brain. The the most animal-like part of your brain is back here. It controls all your bodily functions. And it develops forward until the most developed part of your brain is right here. So if you take a number 666 in your forehead. Not on it. In it. And why six? Because, because six has to do with the creation of man without rest. Because the day of seven is the day of rest. So it's man toiling, not resting in the perfection of who he is. Until it is so overtaken, the brain, that every part is ill-disposed. So therefore, whatever the hand touches is finding an expression of that nature. So the marks on the hand and on the forehead. In the forehead. Has nothing to do with your social security number or the fact that they're injecting, you know, (laughs) they want to inject your kids with a tracking device so you know where they are. Or whatever. Does that make sense? Never says it's a man. The beast. It's a beast nature. It says it's the number of a man. Anyway, that's all free. You can you can spit that out if you want to. I don't care. <laughs> but I could show you in Cain's line in the sixth generation if you go and count them. Look at Cain's line. In the sixth generation, he has three sons that come out of the sixth generation. The father of commerce, the father of agriculture, and the father of the artisans' entertainment. Artisans, artists' entertainment. So the entire foundation of every economy on the earth came out of the sixth generation, three of them, of Cain's line. So therefore, when the beast grows up out of the earth, you can neither buy nor sell unless you have the same mentality of ill disposition. Yeah, just a little Bible fun there. (laughs) You doing all right? Let's get back to the good part. You have a but you're different. You're not of the line of Cain unless you're ill-disposed. But you don't have to be. See, I think we've taught people you have to do in order to become. But it is you have to become or really rest in who you are in order to do. And that means like like okay, so like if I can work hard enough, I can attain that exalted position. That's the opposite. You have to attain the exalted position of authority before you can tame in your life what needs to be tamed and domesticated. Until you're operating from that mindset, you cannot domesticate the energies in your life that God put there to serve you and not to dominate and control you. So every time you forget who you are as a son, every time you forget who you are as a daughter, you're susceptible To those energies ruling over you, and then the fruit of that being something that brings chaos into your life rather than something that brings blessing into your life. So, you don't want to get rid of your anger, you want to tame your anger. You don't want to get rid of your sex drive, you want to tame your sex drive. You don't want to get, I mean, I don't know, what what are the other biggies out there? You don't want to get rid of covetousness because that desire will propel you to improve your life. But you don't want covetousness to dominate you so that you do things that are harmful to other people in order to get what you want. So you don't eradicate any of that stuff. You embrace it and you tame it. And you, don't, you can't do that if you over-identify with it. Oh, I'm just a sinner. Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. Like, what a dumb statement. <laughs> I mean, it just is. It, it just like a flashing neon sign out there to the world that all God cares about is this minutia of morality. Like nitpicky stuff. You know what I'm saying? So, how do I practically do that? I've got to start paying attention to when I'm beating up on myself. I've got to start paying attention to when I'm thinking less about myself. I've got to start paying attention to when I start feeling horrible. And address that. How do I address that? Well, you have a relationship with Christ, right? So, don't be afraid. <laughs> And he is, what, the shepherd of your soul. So don't be afraid to bring these wild beasts to him in order to tame and transform them. So instead of hiding, I've got this issue from God, and, all oh, he's not going to like me, and he's going to send me to hell. And I'm going to play this game with him because he plays this righteousness fiction game with me, feeds me through the blood of Jesus. I mean, forget all that nonsense. And just realize everything about you is good. But not everything about you is serving your highest good. So I can bring all that stuff into his presence and he can work to transform it. And when he does the work, there's rest and there's peace and there's ease and you've moved on from the sixth day into the seventh day of perfection and rest. But we're worried about whether or not it was a 24-hour cycle of creation. (laughs) I'm sorry, it just drives me nuts. It's just my pet peeve. All right, let's stand up. (laughs) Thank you. Does that help you? So again, I'm going to... Keep belaboring this point, belaboring this point. All godliness flows from the inside out. And everything inside you, there is no such thing as garbage. Everything inside you is good and blessed. It just hasn't all of it come under your control yet. Amen. So that it's serving you. All right. So, Father, thank you. Lord, I asked uh, this morning for a download from heaven. I ask for an impartation of the power of the Holy Spirit right now to just pour over our lives, to pour over our minds and our hearts. Lord, I ask this morning above all else that you will inject peace into our lives, that you will inject peace into our being, that you will inject peace into our emotions, that you'll inject peace into our thoughts. Yeah. Father, that we will find the Sabbath rest that you have given to us in Christ, and that we will allow the genetic principles of who you are to unfold within us with ease and grace. Lord, I pray again a release above all this morning of ease and grace and peace to be multiplied in your people here and around the world. And we ask it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day, okay? Go out and ease in ease and peace and grace, love, and enjoy the rest of your day.